Hello everybody, Ash here. Now what you're about to listen to is an episode originally uploaded to the Ear Read This Patreon page. For the moment, I've paused uploads to and payments from the Patreon as I focus on building the main channel. But if you are a patron, you can still access all the bonus content we have on there for free. And if you'd like to support the channel in the meantime, there's a link in the episode description box below. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Marlow. I phoned you. Oh, yes, Mr. Marlow. Something about a gold coin, you said. That's right. The Brasher doubloon, Mr. Morningstar. Oh, yes, the Brasher doubloon. An early American coin. Extremely interesting and valuable. Yeah? Why? Because it's rare. And because it has a romantic and violent history. Hello patrons, and welcome back to our ongoing investigation into Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe novels. We are now up to the third entry in the series, which is 1942's The High Window. It is considered by some to be a weaker effort than the previous two, and the first person to register disappointment in it was Chandler himself, writing to his publisher, I'm afraid the book isn't going to be any good to you. No action, no likeable characters, no nothing. The detective does nothing. Now, you might think none of those things seem like obstacles to a successful Marlowe novel, in which he typically avoids violence, meets no end of unlikable characters, and achieves very little. But as it happened, Chandler was kind of right. The book wasn't much good for his publisher, Blanche Knopf, who put up a lot of money promoting The High Window, only for it to undersell the already small figures of his previous two books. But this episode will be the last time we talk of a Chandler novel performing modestly, For after the high window, Chandler's fortunes would be transformed by the power of the paperback. Far cheaper than the cloth-bound editions Blanche Knopf had been tirelessly promoting, Chandler's readership would exponentially increase with the newer format. The new paperback run of The Big Sleep in 1943 would outsell the hardback American runs of his first three books put together and times by a hundred. As for the quality of the novel, Chandler was being more than a little hard on himself. It may not have the same breakneck antic pace as the first two novels, but what the high window slows down for is a strange and stimulating view. And it's curious to note Chandler's dissatisfaction at his detective doing nothing, given that elsewhere he spoke much more confidently of Marlowe not being quite part of the story, but rather outside and above it. During the writing of the novel, Chandler, who was a veteran of the First World War, was greatly unnerved by the ominous events developing in Europe. And perhaps this contributed to his jaded assessment of his work and the melancholy that suffuses it. Of course, hard-boiled detective fiction always goes well with a good whack of heroic sadness, but in The High Window it is not just the pain of a lone sane man in an insane world, but a broader social sadness too. Failed lives, shabby cunning and faces like lost battles line the streets of Marlowe City. And the case he takes this time round is rather small time compared to his previous adventures, He doesn't have a force of nature like Moose Malloy to rope himself to. Instead, Marlowe is hired by a wealthy, port-soaked widow to retrieve a stolen coin. And our detective's attempt to retrieve this coin introduces him to another rangy set of Los Angeles dissolutes. These include conflicted cop Jesse Breeze, actress Lois Magic, the coiner Morningstar, and tough guy Eddie Prue. Marlowe meets the frankly degenerate and the faux elite, from privileged Pasadena and impoverished Bunker Hill. 
the latter getting a particularly evocative and heartfelt passage, perhaps influenced by Chandler having lived there himself. Marlowe finds that regardless of rank, his fellow citizens have in common the usual combination of secrets, lies, and more than ever in this book, booze. After all, class, he observes, is a thing that has a way of dissolving rapidly in alcohol. So today I'll be talking about counterfeits and duplicates in Marlowe's world, the expansion of his city, and the real Los Angeles murder that is twitching the curtains behind the high window. As always for these Chandler episodes, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adam, who also disagrees with Chandler's low opinion of the book, and in fact counts The High Window as his favourite Marlowe novel. Well, it's my favourite for all the reasons I've talked about why they're, I just like um, Chandler in the first place. Like, mm. they are well-written, they're punchy. There's a quote on the back of my book which is, Chandler wrote as if pain, hurt and life mattered, which I completely agree with. And... I don't know. There's something about this one. It's the it's a real noir plot. There's a MacGuffin, and he's hired by a wealthy widow, and oh, I don't know. It's Big Sleep's the most famous one because it's the first one, but I think this is the most classic one, if that makes any sense. But yeah, it's it's not as kind of um, raucously comic so much as a little bit cooler and sadder. Definitely Still sadder. funny. There's a lot of faded, sort of tawdry and faded imagery in this one. Like everything's just yeah. too hot and sad. And obviously, yeah, and he's the, he's this soiled Galahad um, gallivanting around. And, you know, people, not to fall into the trap of combining all of our uh, episodes, but there is a bit of a Coyote-like thing going on mm. where with um, Phillips yes. trying to sort of go into business and copy him a bit as if... The Marlowe of the Big Sleep was sort of, even though he'd been a private investigator for a while, it was kind of, that book very much feels like he's proving himself. Mm-hmm. Whereas this feels like he's an old hat, a bit mechanical, but aware of his, it's not like Chandler's going through the motions, but it's like Marlowe is. Definitely. Oh, sorry, I've I've become completely distracted by actually just reading the book. I'm going to stop. But it's just <laughs> like you find. Well, that's a, that's as good a recommendation as we could have for a podcast. Just, I was I was flicking through the beginning, looking for a, a particular line, and I just completely lost track that we were recording a podcast and just started reading. As we have discussed on previous episodes, Chandler tended to assemble his novels by cannibalising earlier short stories and grafting two or three plots together. And to begin with, he set out on the same lines, but the novel originally wasn't going to have Marlowe in it. According to Chandler's biographer, Tom Williams, the author first imagined it as a burlesque on the pulp novelette, featuring a golden age detective in a pulp world, and was based on the story, Pearls are a Nuisance. It's interesting that Chandler felt it necessary at this stage to write an all-out burlesque, The form clearly held a lingering appeal, as we've heard him say before that while writing Marlowe novels, he was constantly tempted to burlesque the whole thing. What's strange to me about this is that there is already a great deal of burlesque in these books. Through his creation of Marlowe, Chandler had found a technique by which he could have it both ways. By stripping earlier stories for parts, he could construct a sharp crime tale, and then by positioning his detective not in the middle of things but at a distance, and on an angle, offer commentary on it. Marlowe's ongoing critique, ostensibly of the case but frequently a sort of performance review of how convincing his own world is, is the making of Chandler's style. This is how he made the detective novel self-aware, and with self-awareness comes plenty of opportunity for burlesque. 
perhaps Chandler was frustrated by the lack of acknowledgement for the literariness he was adding to the detective genre, and that's what made him keen to do something a bit more recognisable and traditional, like a straight burlesque. But it seems a bit like Cervantes, still wanting to write a pastoral novel after Don Quixote, as if he hadn't already achieved something above and outside the pastoral already. Either way, Chandler's attempted novel, which bore the name The Brasher Doubloon, was abandoned. He wrote to Blanche Knopf, I don't think I'll beat my brains out trying to use material from old novelettes anymore. It's really frightfully hard work. So instead, he ditched the burlesque and kept the change, the titular gold coin. Reintroducing his protagonist Marlowe, he wrote The High Window. Not being happy with the final product, he took the poor sales with a shrug, saying, I think it did well to get by at all. Chandler worried that he had lost the spark of his earlier writings, and this led him to revert back to adapting old material for his next novel, The Lady in the Lake. The sad sense of having lost something valuable is imparted to Marlowe in a moment towards the end of The High Window. I had a funny feeling as I saw the house disappear, as though I had written a poem and it was very good, and I had lost it and would never remember it again. Chandler's American reviewers at this time were typically brief and bland, as one critic from the Montreal Gazette demonstrates, responding to this moment in their review from September 1942. There are enough passages like this to raise the book to a level about the average, but there is nothing poetic about the murders or about what had happened years and years before at the high window. While consensus on that particular point may have changed, in later years the book has attracted criticism for Chandler's portrayal of Elisha Morningstar, which has been called anti-Semitic. Morningstar is a numismatist, or coin dealer, and despite trading artefacts worth thousands, tries to stiff $5 out of Marlowe for a bit of public information. And in addition, Morningstar is Latin for Lucifer. There are two more Jews in the novel, one running a hock shop who also tries to hardball Marlowe out of a few dollars and is pained to part with gold, and the other is Dr. Karl Moss, described as a big burly Jew with a Hitler moustache. There is some ambivalence in these portraits. Like most Marlowe characters, they contain a mixture of crude stereotype and humanity. Dr. Moss in particular comes off as heroic, witty and discreet. He displays an understanding of Marlowe almost unmatched anywhere in the novels, and it is he who famously describes the detective as a shop-soiled Galahad. As for Morningstar, he is far from the only character who tries to rip off Marlowe, and whilst he is shown to professionally covet gold, he is also a tragic character, undeservedly murdered. The novel wouldn't work without him. He provides not only the essential backstory, but also establishes some of the colour and visual ideas that will resonate throughout the book. And on a personal note, he provides an important addition in Chandler's ongoing use of hen imagery, Last time, the alcoholic Mrs. Florian was memorably compared to a hen. This time, when Morningstar screwed his face up, his chin wobbled and his chest began to bounce in and out, and a sound came out of him like a convalescent rooster, learning to crow again after a long illness. None of this is to excuse anti-Semitism in Chandler's work, which is plainly there, along with frequent homosexual slurs and misogyny. Chandler has been described as having the kind of polite anti-Semitism prevalent in the pre-World War II era, and as he put it in his own frank, ambivalent way, I distrust Jews, although I admit that the really nice Jew is probably the salt of the earth. But yeah, shall we talk about how cutthroat the coin collection business gets? Yeah, so your MacGuffin is a is a is the Brasher de Blue. Oh, what a name. That that's right up there with the Maltese Falcon. Yeah, if it was written by Hammett, it would probably There's be a, called the, the Brasher de The film adaptation is called the Brasher de Blue. I think there's, there's two. One of them has a very eighties name, but it was made in the forties. It's called something like Time to Kill. That's that's exactly what um, it's called. Well, really? Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, the Brasher but de Blue. But Time to Kill is up. the story, but it's got 
a different main character from another series of completely unrelated noir films. Yeah, and it's it's so close to like if it's forties, then the the the, fil- the books will obviously still be coming out at that point. Well, that's the thing. This film, this this book. So I've I've googled it up because it says forty three on the inside of this book, but I don't th- I didn't think that was right, and I looked it up, and it's actually forty two. So for whatever reason, the oh. publication information in my copy is incorrect. But that means it UK maybe maybe, but that means it was written, published, and then adapted into a film without the same main character within the year. Jesus, yeah. Well, he was he did work for Hollywood. Didn't he was he? a writer, yeah. The, the studio system is is pretty uh, weird, pretty kind of mass production at that point, wasn't it? Yeah. So what's um, what's the brash doubloon, and why does everyone want it? A Brasher doubloon is an old American coin privately minted by Ephraim Brasher in 1787. According to Morningstar, no one quite knows how many there are in circulation, but he estimates between a few hundred and a thousand. The missing Brasher doubloon of the book was a cherished item in the late Mr. Murdoch's coin collection. As for his widow, Marlowe's client, she says she doesn't care for such things. But if she held on to it for long enough, she might change her tune. In 2011, a Brasher de Bloom was sold for $7.5 million. That's some markup on the 10,000 Morningstar speculates it might get in the novel. But he adds an important caveat. Any Brasher de Bloom up for sale would have to have a history. The reason, of course, is to protect against counterfeits. Coins without histories are just as suspicious as people without histories. As Chandler's biographer Tom Williams says of the Los Angeles characters in this novel... The newness of everything, including the people, means that any suggestion of history or heritage is a lie. This goes for the Murdochs, who, despite seeming like a family of established aristocrats, are very much new money. In Hollywood, even recent film history has been forgotten. Mr and Mrs Morney have an energetic blonde spaniel, inexplicably called Heathcliff. But when Marlowe mentions Wuthering Heights, the reference is lost and he is accused of double talk. One thing I love about the book is the fluctuating market price of the doubloon. Mrs Murdoch doesn't really care about it, but she does care if her despised daughter-in-law stole it. Marlowe, thinking he has the genuine doubloon, pawns it for $15 to keep it somewhere where no one will look for it. Eventually, he realises someone has been duplicating coins using dental technology. But the joke ends up being that after three murders and a lot of confusion, the counterfeit ends up with just as good a history as any genuine article. At the end of the novel, Mrs. Murdoch appears to end up with a fake, while Marlowe quietly keeps a doubloon of his own, its authenticity left insinuatingly vague. A counterfeiter we never actually meet is caught in Salt Lake City with a dozen brashes, one of which is genuine and presumably Murdoch's original. All of which makes the brashes' inscription a good joke too. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. And it doesn't hurt that doubloon comes from the Spanish word for double. Literal coin forgery isn't the only form of counterfeiting going on here. The high window is packed full of fakes and duplicates. One of them comes in the form of George Anson Phillips, a young private detective, a kind of wannabe Marlowe, but rather less successful. He gets himself tangled in the counterfeiting scheme and ends up shot and killed as a result. Lieutenant Breeze deadpans his epitaph. He thought he was a detective, but it looks like he couldn't get anyone to agree with him. The death of Phillips affects Marlowe, Perhaps the reason it hits close to home is because the younger detective is a kind of smudged reflection of the older one, starting with their names, Philip, of course, being Marlowe's first name. And our Philip isn't the only detective George Anson Phillips resembles. 
Marlowe spots on Philip's card that he has appropriated the emblem of the Pinkerton Agency, which is a surprised eye with long lashes. The Pinkertons were a detective company that Chandler's contemporary Dashiell Hammett worked for. You'll be stealing their business, cautions Marlowe. Oh, hell. What little I get won't bother them. After his death, the cops discover an ad Phillips had placed and report that the girl who typed it up for him couldn't stop laughing. Why worry? Why be doubtful or confused? Why be gnawed at by suspicion? Consult cool, careful, confidential, discreet investigator George Anson Phillips. Glenview... 9521. Marlowe later reflects this onto himself, thinking, consult cockeyed, careless, club-footed, dissipated investigator Philip Marlowe, Glenview 7537. Once you start looking for doubles in the high window, they seem like they're everywhere. The names in this book almost wonkily rhyme. Marlowe rescues a girl called Merle. Her full name is Merle Davis, and she works for the Murdochs. The two women of show business Marlowe meets are called Linda Conquest and Lois Magic. It is revealed that Lois is involved with a man called Louis. Then there is the coiner Morningstar and the ex-actor Alex Morney. Even in passing details, phrases resemble each other, as if in a dirty mirror. On a list of building occupants, Marlowe sees dental laboratories, then Dalton and Rees. When Marlowe first arrives at the Murdoch house, he sees a yellow and black butterfly staggering through the hot air. Then on his last visit, he sees a butterfly with the same colouring, landing on the same hydrangea bush, and he wonders if it was the same one. The colours yellow and black appear in combination throughout the book and seem to have sinister connotations. The two bodies Marlowe first discovers in connection to the Brasher doubloon are those of Morningstar and Phillips. Phillips wears a yellow and cocoa-coloured hat, and Elisha Morningstar's handkerchief is yellow, spotted with ink. The third and final body belongs to Louis Vanier, he is found leering into a mirror, wearing yellow pyjama bottoms and a dark-coloured robe. Yellow and black makes me think of wasps and hazard signs, as well as the crevassed gold of pirate coins. Marlowe associates black and yellow with an acidic feeling, saying of a room in Bunker Hill, it was egg yolk yellow. All it needed was a few fat black spiders painted on the yellow to be anybody's bilious attack. Let's use a little of the old acid, he later says to Merle, as he presses for the facts. His employer, Mrs. Murdoch, is described as speaking acidly when not gobbling port. And acid, of course, is used in the counterfeiting process as a way of cleaning the detritus of solid gold fakes. Another colour of money recurs throughout the novel. This is Marlowe taking in the office of Alex Morney. I looked at the ornaments on the desk. Everything standard and all copper. A copper lamp, pen set and pencil tray. A glass and copper ashtray with a copper elephant on the rim. A copper letter opener, a copper thermos bottle on a copper tray, copper corners on the blotter holder. There was a spray of almost copper-coloured sweet peas in a copper vase. It seemed like a lot of copper. When he first meets Merle, who will turn out to be at the heart of a dark Murdoch family secret, he notes that her coarse-grained, coppery blonde hair was not ugly in itself, but was drawn back so tightly over her narrow head that it had almost lost the effect of being hair at all. Later, her copper hair gets mentioned again as it catches funny little lights from the high windows. Perhaps this illuminates her connection to the high window of the title. Marlowe deduces later that Merle pushed Mrs Murdoch's first husband out of a window and to his death after he made unwanted advances on her. Louis Vanier possesses photographic evidence of this and has been blackmailing Mrs Murdoch ever since. Instead of turning Merle in, Mrs Murdoch has been protecting Merle, albeit in a controlling manner. But maybe the abundance of copper and black and gold is simply to create the effect of dirty millions piling up throughout the novel. 
Maybe copper hair is simply there to highlight the character's artificiality. Because Marlowe has always had a nose for phoniness, and in this novel, as he travels further into the world of Hollywood, his whiskers start to go haywire. Of Lois Magic, we hear, unforgettably, that from 30 feet away, she looked like a lot of class. From 10 feet away, she looked like something to be made up to be seen from 30 feet away. Magic wears sunglasses with lenses the size of donuts, and her hair is as artificial as a nightclub lobby. Her husband, Alex Morney, used to act as heavies in films, and is described as the fellow for whom they coined the phrase as ignorant as an actor. Both he and his wife talk right out of the catalogue, though sometimes with a little of Marlowe's self-awareness. Lois says at one point, sit down and rest your sex appeal. Marlowe is always intensely critical when it comes to performance. When he quizzes Linda Conquest, he observes, she looked up at me and nodded, remembering, letting me see her remembering. At times, his prickliness around phonies borders on neurotic. What I like about this place, he says to Conquest, is everything runs so true to type. The cop on the gate, the shine on the door, the cigarette and the Czech girls, the fat, greasy, sensual Jew and the tall, stately, bored showgirl, the well-dressed, drunk and horribly rude director cursing the barman, the silent guy with the gun, the nightclub owner with the soft grey hair and the B-picture mannerisms. And now you, the tall, dark torture with the negligent sneer, the husky voice and the hard-boiled vocabulary. Conquest replies, is that so? And what about the wise-cracking snooper with last year's gags and the come-hither smile? Marlowe also makes a note of what he finds genuine. When Mrs. Murdoch gives a rare smile, he thinks, it wasn't a beautiful smile, being on slightly the wrong kind of face, but it was a smile. Even though that face has already been compared to a side of beef, an elephant hide, the fact that it was a real smile seems to mean something to Marlowe. He's not the only one who rejects artificiality. Even the supposedly ignorant actor Alex Morney spots it and says, Don't feed me the ham. I've been in pictures. I'm a connoisseur of ham. Interestingly, at one point, Marlowe ends up accused of artificiality himself. It comes as Marlowe is being sneered at by a narrow party in a black shirt and yellow scarf. He wonders if he is an assassin, as the man looks at him over a copy of The New Republic. You ought to lay off the fluff and get your teeth into something solid, like a pulp magazine. As he storms off, someone comments behind him, Hollywood's full of them. But I I did notice that there's a real um, sense of sort of staleness about this one obviously not in the writing as if staleness is the, the horror of this one mm-hmm. like things repeating people kind of caught in a kind of drunken loop there's old people with faces like lost battles knocking around uh, stale beer evading oh, yes more there's this asthmatic old wealthy widow trying to chase down a an old well, because it's, it's that bit not sousing herself with port. Not too far from the start of the book, the coins just returned. Yeah, and it's just oh, I don't need you anymore. Got the coin back. Someone posted it back to me. Sorry. I think when I first read it, I wasn't sure about this one, and then that hook got me, and I was all in. Yeah, I, to be honest, I was almost. But after farewell, my lovely, and the, I still think that's one of the best openings. I mean, never mind of, of within the Marlowe mm. novels, just as a as a, both a comic opening and a, a kind of crime opening. I think it's it's got everything. The opening to Farewell, My Lovely. Oh, absolutely. So this, when he's he's going to some old widow's house and tasked with finding a coin, is a little bit less promising. Yes. After the 
after Moose. Oh, bloody Which is just a, a kind of blaze, that opening. But no, I can't, I don't know. Anybody who has, as I, I think, as I think I've said every single time we've talked about Chandler, anybody who has any interest in crime, modern, classic, pulpy, serious, non-fiction, whatever, you know, it's all here. It's all good. I agree. I mean, it's not going to, you shouldn't be surprised if we continue to do episodes on these and remain in this, a similar state of uh, almost exhausted Yes, we're going to continue talking about Raymond Chandler and there's absolutely nothing you can do to stop us. Yeah, it would be almost better if the next one's a complete pile of dog shit, but I just know... They're not going to be, man. It's like, not. Well, I, no. The only one I haven't read so far is Playback. Uh, well, you know, look look how, look how thin it is. Like, Playback for me is just the same stuff, but distilled. With all these names and scenarios repeating, you can understand why Marlowe says at one point... I had the curious feeling of reliving something that had already happened. When he discovers the photographic evidence of Horace Bright being pushed from a window, what he sees first is a colour reproduction of the original negative, which is a rather neat mirroring itself of the process of counterfeiting coins, which is done, we are told, in taglio, meaning the depressed area or negative is what you mould from. Anyway, for some reason, Horace Bright, the man being pushed from the window, is dressed in a doublet and hose with a feathered hat and lace cuffs. It was eight years ago that he died, and yet he looks like he might be from the 15th century. Antiquity and fustiness are everywhere. Morningstar's threadbare office is lined with yellowing labels on brown filing cases. And the coiner himself gets another standout description. This, allegedly, is the line that made Billy Wilder want to make a film with Chandler. Fuzz grew out of his ears, far enough to catch a moth. In Bunker Hill, we find men with faces like lost battles and women with faces like stale beer. Alcohol is a way of falling out of time and into stasis. Marlowe demonstrates this himself when he says, I drove back to Hollywood, bought a pint of good liquor, checked in at the plaza, and sat on the side of the bed, staring at my feet and lapping the whiskey out of the bottle, just like any common bedroom drunk. When I had had enough of it to make my brain fuzzy enough to stop thinking, I undressed and got into bed, and after a while, but not soon enough... I went to sleep. Something interesting, though, just to completely derail whatever thoughts we were having. My copy also has, I can't remember which one it's from, but it's Philip Marlowe's description of himself. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, What's well, a little extra? I, no, I don't think it's extra. I think it's taken from one of the books, but I can't remember which one. Um, I'm a licensed private investigator and have been for quite a while. I'm a lone wolf, unmarried, getting middle-aged and not rich. I've been in jail more than once and I don't do divorce business. I like liquor and women and chess and a few other things. The cops don't like me too well, but I know a couple I get along with. I'm a native son, born in Santa Rosa, both parents dead, no brothers or sisters, and when I get knocked off in a dark alley sometime, if it happens, as it could to anyone in my business, no one will feel that the bottom has dropped out of his or her life. At one point in the high window, Marlowe takes the time to recount the Cassidy case, which goes roughly as follows. The son of a multimillionaire, Cassidy was a young man found deceased with a gunshot to the head. In the adjoining room, his secretary was found in the same condition. A burnt-out cigarette had scorched his fingers. There had been a lot of drinking. The cops put it down to a murder-suicide and said the secretary had gone mad. But Marlowe's heard what every cop already knows, that Cassidy was a mean drunk and the murder-suicide was the other way around. Money paid for the story to be reversed, another crime to be dirtily reflected. Marlowe recounts this to make a point to the cops he's dealing with. Until you guys own your own souls, you don't own mine. 
until you guys can be trusted every time and always, in all times and conditions, to seek the truth out and find it and let the chips fall where they may, until that time comes, I have a right to listen to my conscience. But then, interestingly, when one of the cops approaches Marlowe to ask more about the custody case, Marlowe drops it, saying it was a long time ago, and also, it didn't happen. It seems like saying something happened a long time ago in a city with no history is as good as saying it didn't happen at all. But in fact, the Cassidy case is closely modelled on a real murder, one that happened at a Beverly Hills mansion called Greystone in February 1929. A young man born into oil money was found shot in the head, as was his secretary, who was found scorched by a burnt-out cigarette. The case angered Chandler. It was obvious to him that the official story was false. The burnt-out cigarette in the secretary's hand, as well as the proximity of the gunshots, proved that it was the rich heir who had first murdered the other man and then killed himself. This angered Chandler, as Marlowe is angered by the cops, by their pretended piety and hypocrisy. One of them tells him, Murder ain't funny, Marlowe, and in the simple art of murder, Chandler offers a riposte. It is not funny that a man should be killed, but it is sometimes funny that he should be killed for so little and that his death should be the coin of what we call civilization. There's a quote somewhere that's like, he's a, he's a shop-stained Galahad. It's in this one. It's, it's in this one. Shop-soiled Galahad. Galahad yeah. It. I think last time we were saying in, in Farewell, My Lovely, he's, he's a strangely, in the, in the big sleep, he sort of was the story. Yes. Of course, there was a there was a there was a, a a case to be solved, but it was it felt like he was as much in the case as sort of studying. Yes, it, and it was also your first real Maybe. introduction to him, and you were interested in him as a character, and then all the other ones yeah. you know who he is already, and then it's about what situations he can insert himself into. But it's not so much insert himself into, but kind of run. He's more and more rounded as a kind of voice, yes, but less and less of a person in a way. He's less kind of emotionally compromised by things. He's he's sort of moved by things and he wants to correct them, but he doesn't really get involved. Yeah, because at, at, the, at the end of the big sleep, it almost looks like he's going to end up with someone, and then he doesn't. Yeah, well, that's that's noir in a nutshell, though. That that's Chinatown. Whereas in Farewell, My Lovely, and this, it's more like he sort of becomes more and more of a machine, like a knight. Yes. He's, he's sort of honour personified, or honour on legs, uh, in a place of no, no honour. Marlowe might disapprove of the cops covering up the Cassidy case, but he comes to realise that in order to stop the chain of murders fuelled by the Murdoch's secret and the counterfeiting scheme, he has to close the loop with a story of his own. Much is left ambiguous. Was it Merle or Mrs Murdoch that pushed Horace Bright out the window? Who really has the genuine doubloon? Marlowe ends up putting things the way his conscience can tolerate. He tells Merle it was Mrs Murdoch who pushed her husband from the window and that she is manipulating Merle into taking the blame. After that, he takes Merle cross-country to her parents in one of the most clear-cut rescues the shop-soiled Galahad ever pulls off. As for the real killer of Mr Vanya, Marlowe knows that it is Leslie Murdoch, Mrs Murdoch's son, but he doesn't tell the cops. With Vanya's murder remodelled as a suicide, the loop can be closed and no more lives put in danger. Tom Williams points out that Chandler has Marlowe look in the mirror throughout the book as if to confirm to himself that he still exists. When the cops enter Marlowe's home and see that see a half-completed chessboard, one asks, don't it take two guys to play chess? Later, Marlowe finds Mrs Murdoch also playing a game against herself. Not chess this time, but solitaire. When she complains, the ace of clubs is buried, darn it. I'm not going to get it out in time, Marlowe suggests. Kind of slide it out when you're not looking. Effectively, what Marlowe does at the end, interfering with the case, is cheating. This requires him to load the deck when his conscience isn't looking. 
but the result, the rescue of Merle, and the end of the chain of murders, is worth it. This is far from a detective doing nothing, as Chandler self-deprecatingly put it. Marlowe chooses a lesser evil, and by doing so proves his agency, and that he does indeed exist in this world. Chandler's brutal assessment of his own work was something he had in common with the poet Philip Larkin. Larkin's poem, High Windows, ends with the following stanza. Rather than words comes the thought of high windows, the sun-comprehending glass, and beyond it, the deep blue air that shows nothing, and is nowhere, and is endless. In a draft of this poem, Larkin had the last line finishing, and is endlessness, which he crossed out in dislike and replaced with, and fucking piss. In sentiments similar to Chandler, Larkin said of the poem that he didn't think it very good, but liked the title. It's a true poem. One longs for infinity and absence, the beauty of somewhere you're not. It shows humanity as a series of oppressions, and one wants to be somewhere where there's neither oppressed nor oppressor, just freedom. In our high window, Marlowe sees a way of rescuing Merle from oppressors, but freedom comes at a price. He has to slide it out when he's not looking. But the novel doesn't end on a comprehensively bleak portrayal of a world where only forgeries can buy your freedom. Lieutenant Breeze wafts in at the end of the high window to fill Marlowe in on some loose ends. He does so, he explains, on account of the Cassidy case and the way it made me feel, I sometimes give a guy a break he could perhaps not really deserve. A little something paid back out of the dirty millions to a working stiff, like me, or like you. Be good. Um, th- this is just him describing the fucking reception on the way in, which anyone else would be, you know, just a waste of time. And he's even describing a boring reception. James Patterson. And James he, Patterson he, would go, they walked into the reception. They walked into the medium-sized reception. <laughs> the grey wall offset the normal chairs. The automatic doors opened automatically. I walked forward, my shoes hitting the floor, <laughs> as I pushed my feet towards it. One, one leg. my body forward. <laughs> one foot rose and fell, followed by the other. Wait, what if I won't get to the door, I wondered, as the door approached. End chapter end. Chapter start. End of chapter. The door was approaching. I reached the door. <laughs> <laughs> okay, steal. But this is, this is yeah. Chandler describing a reception. He, he says something like, you know, blah, 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 drapes. Um, and then ends by saying, there was a carpet that was just something on the floor and two open windows with neck curtains that puckered in and out like the lips of a toothless old man sleeping. <sighs> you don't have to put that much effort into describing the reception, but I'm so glad he did. Those are the kind of lines Raymond Chandler throws away on carpets. <laughs> he can afford to. I'm really interested to see when it eventually comes around and this falls out of copyright, what new stories people are going to write Marlowe into. Mm. Because I think he could very much become a sort of Sherlock Holmes-style figure. Oh, you think? So it's so a kind of character who can be applied to endless scenarios. A sort of a, a cynical detective with a heart of gold is an enormous cliche but i think you'd be able to see a lot more fiction based around an extant character like marlowe come out which i'd really like to see hmm. the question will be can they match the the writing or the wit true well i think people have been managing to rewrite or well, write new agatha christie's in a fairly convincing way they're interesting if you've read any of them i oh, really I could, i've seen a few people have tried um chandler's in fact, you say um, there's seven, yeah. which there are, but didn't um, his uh, didn't he leave one unfinished called something like Poodle Springs? Oh, I don't know. Was there an unfinished one? I think so, and someone finished it. Okay. 
in the way that they always do. Because I think is it, playback is posthumous, but he wrote it all. Uh, wait, I've got playback. I think. I've got playback here. Ah, oh, the Chandler shelf is in shot. <laughs> there's, there's the two. Yeah, right. This really pisses me off. Nobody will be able to see this apart from you, Ash. But if anyone else owns this collection, they'll know my pain. So you've got, you've got high window, normal size paperback. You've got playback, normal size paperback. You know, they're this roughly the same size. Playback's actually slightly larger, but you've got trouble is my business, which is like three-fifths of the size of a normal paperback oh, it's tiny and oh, i don't know these the, these ones are like short stories whichever the eighth book is i was going to say i'm more bothered about what is trouble is my business because i haven't even heard of that one it's four marlowe short stories this one has trouble is my business Fingerman, goldfish and red wind well none of those ring a bell so i think i might need to um get some more chandler but I, again like i don't I, i'm not sure where poodle springs fits in mm-hmm well, so what's next up? Lady in the Lake? Lady in the Lake is next. Is it? Or is it Little, Little Sisters yeah. after Lady in the Lake and then Long Goodbye? Yeah. And then a Long Goodbye. Well, uh, if you haven't already, um, just read them. Do. Just read them. Re- track them down. I'm sick and tired of recommending Raymond Chandler. <laughs> well, you've got you've got four more to to do, so pace yourself. Well, I'm. I've, um, I tell you what might help is um, our ongoing other detective series. Uh, James Patterson Bingo, oh. which every time we do reminds me of all the reasons why Chandler is so valuable. Yes, it is very easy to write very bad crime fiction. I mean, it, it's such a strange thing to try and nail down Marlowe because he's he's got he's capable of such cruelty, uh, emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like he he behaves the way that you always want characters to behave. Like when you when you are presented with a series of scenarios and you always think like, I wish they'd just do that. He does it. But obviously because it's this kind of movie. And he just does it. It's, you know, the cliche will do this. But of course, he just gets in there. He says these things. Um, And yet, he's not someone we ever see inside of, really. No. And I think... Or we we can only interpret from behaviour. Next step. Interactions with other people. And I think think with that, I've, I've run out of words to recommend Chandler again for the day. Next time, I'll think of some more. Well, it's lucky we do these once a month because I, I know what you mean. It is. Um, that's why I was saying it would almost be easier if he, he really fucked up one. It's almost it's almost sickening how much we've, we've been praising him, but I don't care. Well, hopefully um, you patrons aren't bored of it yet because um, there's more to go. Because God, you will be by the end of this. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that for, for now. We'll hose ourselves down with some... Uh, uh, sobering Patterson in between now and then, <laughs> just to remind just uh, <laughs> just to remind you that not all books are created equal. Exactly. Yeah. And on that note, farewell. Goodbye, my love. <laughs> the long goodbye.